Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Raya and the Last Dragon, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. disclaimer this is not an official disney podcast but all of these films are available to stream now on disney plus so come on watch along with us and let's learn together i'm film journalist ben travis and while i've been known to go toe-to-toe with bongo the bear in a unicycle brawl i'm not your disneyversity lecturer this week i'm a mere lost boy getting into scraps flinging axes and following the leader as we watch through 58 films and counting And that leader is, of course, Dr. Sam Summers, the boy who never grows old, who soars on the wings of imagination, and is our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Sam, I'm happy to be following you this week as we uh, head into Peter Pan. How are you doing? I'm all good. You hit a lot of notes in that introduction. Right. You hit Bongo the Bear to start with, which is like deep cut unless you've been following the podcast, in which case you're totally all fair with it. It's one for the real heads. I'm the leader. We've established that, regardless of whether I feel that to be the case. And I am the boy who never grows up, which is... In one blow, you're coming for my deep-seated insecurities about um, (laughs) just my lifestyle, my interests. (laughs) I mean, look, I'm right there with you. Like, I'm surrounded by all of my childhood things, you know. I feel like we're both the boys that never grow old. But we can't both be Peter Pan. Like, the, the dynamic here... For this episode, at least, you're Peter Pan. I guess that makes me Wendy. You're Wendy. You could be, um, John... John? I've forgotten the names of these kids already. <laughs> I, that's that's one of my big Disney blind spots. I will never, ever commit to memory the names of Wendy's brothers. Is it John and Michael? Honestly, I didn't write it down either, and I can't remember. <laughs> I kept wanting to call one of them Peter, and then I was like, no, that's Peter Pan. <laughs> but you, you, you're quite Johnny, though. <laughs> I'm quite Johnny? What does, <laughs> what does that mean? I think you could, if we were doing, like, Disney dress-up or something, you mm-hmm. could be John. Uh, what, basically, you're saying he's got glasses. He's got glasses. Glasses, He's yeah. got glasses. That's it. That's, That's all it, you yeah. need. You, you would suit a top hat, I think. Oh, uh, look! If you're trying to turn me into an oldie timey frog, it's not going to happen. <laughs> Stop trying to put me in a top hat and get me riding a unicycle while wearing a little waistcoat. <laughs> you got to let that dream die. It's like the movie Vertigo, except instead of trying to make you into Kim Novak, I'm trying to make you into an old-timey frog. I'm onto you. I know your game. Uh, so what are your feelings on Peter Pan? Is this one that you have particular affection for? I don't want to say held on to necessarily, but it is one, along with Alice, this is now from kind of a set that I did have on VHS as a kid. It is one that I watched a bunch I kind of turned away from it when that really strong run, or for me, like that really strong and influential run of like Hercules, Mulan, Tarzan, like those were the ones that I would watch quite a lot as a kid, and then like Toy Story as well, and within that melee, Peter Pan fell by the wayside, but... As an adult, there are a couple of aspects of Peter Pan which stand really high for me Mm. among the Disney filmography. There's a couple of things that I think it's doing better than any film we've seen thus far, potentially. 
that's intriguing because I don't quite know what those things are going to be. The thing for me heading into this was what came out of our last episode, that this is the last Mary Blair film. I'm so sad this is the end of the Mary Blair era. Like, she's been such a big part of this last, well, I guess from the package films onwards is when we really started to kind of pick out her work and it's been such an incredible through line. That art style has been so strong. I'm sad that this is the end of uh, Mary Blair's time with the studio. I wonder, will we get into that uh, in the context of, or do you think we'll pick up on that next week? What, in terms of Mary Blair? waving us goodbye yeah and why that was and what happened there and yeah, we, can, we can talk about that a bit this week it'll be interesting next week to find how much we feel her absence although i would almost suggest it and feel the absence in this one as well mm. of those kind of concepts and we'll see how you feel about that i guess as we go through as we enter yeah. never neverland so on that note we're all set down the register's complete and it's time for class to begin And this time, after venturing to Wonderland, we're off to Neverland for another story of childhood imagination in 1953's Peter Pan. Okay, so after Alice in Wonderland, that was an hour and a half of crazy nonsense with a tiny book on either side of regular people talking about books. Sam, what is the plot of Peter Pan? This one, I, I guess there's quite a lot of parallels with Alice in Wonderland, but it's it's definitely taken down a few notches. It's not cranked up to 11 in the way that that one was. No, it's still, I guess as you suggest, about children being taken on a trip into a fantastical world. But when we actually hit that world, it's a bit more straightforward. It has more of a plot to it. So this is about the darling children, Wendy and her brothers who are potentially called John and Michael, who tell each other stories about Peter Pan until one day the man or the boy himself arrives to whisk them off for adventures in Never Neverland where they come into conflict with Captain Hook. And I am going to say Hook every single time and you've just (laughs) got to get used to that. I love it. I love it. Hook all the way. Hook. And... (laughs) Once very early when I was um, starting to see my partner, I tried to have a conversation with her about the Peter Pan adjacent Steven Spielberg movie, Hook, and she did not pick up on what I was saying. Like, I was telling her the plot of this movie, and we got till about halfway through, and she was like, oh, you mean Hook? Of course I've seen <laughs> she Hook. Like, what is this film? Hook. <laughs> Are there umlauts over the U? <laughs> it sounds like something from Ikea. Uh, is Hook. His name's Captain Hook, Captain James Hook, and he is Peter Pan's nemesis in constant conflict with the little lad. He's desperately trying to track down Peter's hideout so that he can run him through to make up for Peter chopping off his hand. And this is the setup for our various adventures in Neverland until eventually Peter and Wendy and the boys get the better of him and return home to London. So that's it in a nutshell. I will say straight up, I enjoyed this film, but I kind of wanted to see the prequel about Peter Pan chopping off Captain Hook's hand and feeding it to a crocodile. Like, show me that movie. Yeah, that is a pretty hardcore thing to, like, even imply in a (laughs) Disney movie. Yeah, it's so visceral. But yeah, I have to say, this one for me is not one that I grew up watching. I don't think we had this on VHS. There is sequences and images, like with all of these films, that are just part of the cultural consciousness that I've absorbed over the years. But I think this might have been the first time that I've watched Peter Pan, properly anyway. So what did you make of it then? I have to say, so far in this era, 
I'm enjoying the confidence of these movies, like Cinderella into Alice in Wonderland into Peter Pan. They feel like classics. Like, I don't think they're all, I don't think any of them are flawless. But even compared to the other Disney movies we've watched so far, I think they just have a confidence and a tone to them that feels kind of sprightly and properly entertaining. And I I enjoyed this. It definitely has its problems, and it's definitely problematic, which we're going to get into. This is major outdated cultural depictions territory, and if you look in the description of this episode, we're going to put in the time code of when we start talking about that stuff, because I think it's important for us to discuss it. But also, if you'd rather not hear us talk about those things, you can uh, sort of skip through that. It's totally up to you. But yeah, there are definitely some areas of this film that I didn't love. But I enjoyed it. It's good fun. It's a good time, you know? Yeah, this is definitely a more cohesive era. Everything's just a little bit more slick. I guess that's why it's the bangers era, isn't it? Like, these are bangers. These are, for some reason, the person who jumped into my head was David Guetta. So (laughs) I don't know why. I don't think I could name any of his songs off the top of my head. But these are David Guetta songs. I'm sticking with it. Mm -hmm. And those earlier films, your Snow White, your Pinocchio, your Fantasia, maybe a bit less slick, a bit less cohesive. You can still see them finding the feet in a lot of ways. They each do quite exciting things. I think the marriage of japes and songs and sequences and an overall narrative is like much tighter here than in some of the early ones where it was like, now we're going to have 15 minutes of solid japes and then we're going to stop to have a song and then the plot's going to begin. But then five minutes after the plot begins, we're stopping for more japes. That was kind of my experience of lots of the earlier films and and some of the more recent ones. I know there was a lot of japes at the start of Cinderella, Mouse Japes, Ahoy. But for the most part, it feels like they're kind of getting their groove in the storytelling rhythms in a way that they maybe hadn't early on. Do you think that's fair? I think it's fair to say that the storytelling is becoming more what we expect of a Disney movie and more what we expect of a contemporary movie in general. I mean, Alice, as we discussed last week, didn't get great reviews and the public didn't massively go for it until everyone was getting stoned in the 70s. But overall, it does feel like Disney had kind of got its groove back post the package era so was the studio in kind of full swing at this point in time were they flying high on making these bigger movies getting a bit of money in what was happening at the studio at this point well i mean we are back in a rhythm which is actually quite familiar from the golden age which is we have a hit and then we have a bit of a flop and cinderella was a big hit cinderella did bring the money in and did get the whole mechanism flowing again and while alice was a flop it did not meet expectations by any stretch but it wasn't disastrous in the way that Fantasia almost was and what we have here in Peter Pan like Alice in Wonderland another thing that hasn't come with that movie is that this was in production for a long long time this well predates the entry of America into World War Two like Alice as well this was a candidate for the second feature even there's a world in which this is the movie that they made after Snow White. And I can't quite figure out exactly why they ended up going with the movies that they did rather than Peter Pan. I think when you talk about Alice, whenever you read about Alice, it's always the story that comes up as being the issue. We could not crack the story. We could not figure out how to turn this surreal episodic narrative into what a feature film needs to look like. And arguably, they didn't quite manage that in the finished film. They came up with a lot of different ideas for what that could be, different overarching narratives that were all abandoned. Peter Pan, in general, as a play, as a novel, 
is a much more straightforward storyline that is a lot more suited to a feature film. I mean, the runtime of the play even won't have been that much off the runtime of this film. So you've got this very clear structure ahead of you, and I'm not 100% sure why it took them so long. I've heard that there may have been issues with getting the rights from the Great Ormond Street Hospital, but then I've read elsewhere that that wasn't a problem, so I don't know. But fact is, this was another movie that had been on the docket for a long, long time that Walt and his animators have been working towards for a while and they were fully ready when Pearl Harbor happened and this was one that was totally just delayed by the war after that point and here it is now that they've got the money let's get involved let's get it done I want to pick up on something you said there which is obviously this is another adaptation J.M. Barry the thing I hadn't realised and that it spells out in the opening credits is that Peter Pan was a play? Was it always a play? I never knew in its written form that that's how it began. It was initially a story within a story in a novel that Barry had written called The Little White Bird. And we'll get into more about what that entails in Discarded because it is quite something. And then that story was expanded into a play and then that play was adapted into a novel. The story within a story was called Peter Pan and Kensington Gardens, then the play was called Peter Pan, on The Boy Who Never Grew Up, and then the novel was actually called Peter and Wendy. And that's a title that I think we're going to come back to down the line uh, further into this episode, Peter and Wendy. But yeah, I never knew Peter Pan was a play initially, and this is very specifically named as being uh, an adaptation of that play rather than the novel. I thought that was interesting. One thing before we crack on... I just want to pick up on the tagline of this film, which is amazing, because at this point in time, Disney is really cranking out the hyperbolic taglines for their movies. I can't, what was the Cinderella one? It was like, oh, it's a, it's an absolute classic or something like that. It's the greatest since Snow White. Greatest since Snow White. And this one, it just made me laugh because it's got a really sinister undertone. <laughs> the tagline for Peter Pan was, it will live in your heart forever. <laughs> Which I see what they're going for. It's, it'll live in your heart forever, but there is definitely a version of that. That is a horror tagline right there. It will live in your heart forever. Not the only sinister and unsettling thing about Peter Pan as a premise, either. (laughs) Right, let's find out what those sinister undertones are. Let's hear what you had to say about the lack of Mary Blair and about the ups and the downs. Let's do this thing. As with the last few movies then, Peter Pan starts with a big choral outburst. I just love that kind of thematic trope that they're playing into. It feels grand every time you start one of these movies, that big outcry of, ah. And and I, I love this whole title sequence. I love the title card with the feather that makes the tea of Peter Pan and just the style of the illustration and the colours chosen for it. It's a beautiful opening sequence. This music in particular, I think, is excellent. This is one of the things that I was saying earlier. It's an example of Peter Pan hitting a peak that none of the other films have reached. This is my favourite Disney score to this point. Right, and you celebrate with alliteration. It's Peter Pan hitting the peak. This is not necessarily the songs, mind you. Well, in fact, certainly not the songs themselves. Kind of weak, right? There's one memorable one, and it's a bit yikesy past the first verse. (laughs) We're going to get into it. I think the first couple of songs, the second start of the right, and You Can Fly, You Can Fly, You Can Fly, are just gorgeous arrangements. Not necessarily the melodies. Uh, Second start of the right, which is the song that plays over the opening credits, is probably my favourite. In that regard, the second star to the right. Uh, That was me singing it. Originally written for Alice in Wonderland. I 
think right. I mentioned that last week. This was going to be the song that Alice sings in the park with totally right. different lyrics, which is also very good. There's a demo of that that exists and it sounds cool. Would it have been like the second tree to the left or something? <laughs> oh God, I can't remember what it was, but it was like, it was totally different lyrics to the same melody. Um, that was deemed a bit too melancholy for Alice at that point and it was a more downbeat arrangement. This one is full of sounds and voices. I, I can't talk very well about music, Ben. I don't necessarily have the vocabulary to really say why I love this, but this sound is so classic to me. It just embodies the Disney sound. In fact, it's one of those things that I think people have in their heads as a convention of classic Disney, when in fact it only really applies to a couple of movies. It's there in Alice in Wonderland, it's there to a point in Cinderella, but it's very much there in Peter Pan. This is like the platonic ideal of the Disney choir. And I realise I've not really mentioned any of the musicians who worked on these films before, so I wanted to give a shout out to the composer, Oliver Wallace, who wrote this score. He also, he pretty much did every Disney score from Dumbo through Lady and the Tramp, with the exception of Bambi. And uh, Judd Conlon, who is the singer and arranger who put together the choir for this, and he did that for Alice in Wonderland as well, and I think you can hear the similarities. Speaking of shout outs, picked out a name in the animating director's list, your boy Ward Kimball. Yeah, Ward Kimball's still around. Ward Kimball worked on, I believe, The Crocodile for this, who obviously (laughs) we'll get to, and who is one of the high points of the movie. I was about to say, I can already tell how much you love that crocodile. (laughs) It's super Sam Summersy. One other thing quickly on the credits, which you mentioned before, is that the Great Ormond Street Hospital had the rights to this story. They, They get a little thank you in the credits, so presumably they helped Disney out in terms of being able to actually make this film, giving them the rights to adapt this for the screen. Yeah, so when Barry died, he left the rights to the play and the novel to the Great Ormond Street Hospital, and I believe in Britain that is still in place, so that there's a special clause enshrined in British law. If you actually go in and read the copyright laws, it's like, accept Peter Pan, which will always be owned by the Great Ormond Street Hospital. Wow. So it, I believe in this country is technically not public domain, whereas in the States... People play more fast and loose with that, which is why like Disney don't need to pay the Great Ormond Street Hospital every time they utilise the character of Tinkerbell, for example, these days. This is also, of course, the company that every so often, whenever it looks like Mickey Mouse is going to go out of copyright, goes to the Supreme Court and gets them to extend the limit on copyright protections in the US. Right, so otherwise Mickey Mouse would go into the public domain and then anyone can use it. Yeah, Disney and copyright, weird relationship there. Mm. Okay, so as we head into the main part of the story, there's one line that really stood out to me, which also doesn't seem to really... Well, I guess it sort of applies to the story, but the line is, all this has happened before and it will all happen again. That was a line that I completely did not associate with Peter Pan because you say that to me and I think Battlestar Galactica. Sam, have you seen Battlestar Galactica? (laughs) I've not seen Battlestar Galactica. It's robots, right? Yeah, it's people versus robots. Spaceship holding the last of humanity. The Cylons are trying to destroy it. The humans are trying to get to Earth. Everything about it is cyclical and it's this sort of phrase associated with the show, all this has happened before and it will all happen again. No idea that that was Peter Pan, so I was pretty sad after they brought this up and there were no Cylons in this film. (laughs) What the hell? But we get some stunning London night shots. I kind of love the fact that this is set very specifically in London and you get those beautiful shots kind of swooping into the city where you've got Tower Bridge and I'm in London right now but I'm feeling all nostalgic for London because I've literally been in my home for the last four months. It's been a while since you've been to Big Ben 
Yeah, and like you look at, when, I don't know, when they show London on the news or whatever, I'm always like, oh, beautiful. Yeah, a bit of a London boy, aren't you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, mate. A bit of a London boy. <laughs> Do you, uh, you see your house? Do you see your house on there? I didn't see my house, sadly, but uh, yeah, it was just it was just a lovely shot, you know. I liked it, and and that's where we meet the darling family. They're living in London, and we get to meet the two boys whose names we can't remember. And Wendy get to know that obviously Wendy is the like Peter Pan Stan. The boys kind of think Peter Pan is a real person, and they use him in their stories to play out these kind of pirate fantasies. We get to learn the dynamic of of the darlings. Yes, and one thing that also becomes immediately clear is that the parents, in particular the father, does not care for all of this Peter Pan malarkey. He's a grumpy bastard, isn't he? I love this sequence, actually, when I was re-watching it. It, it. You really do get to know who these characters are, what their relationship is, and there's a lot of good comedy in there, right? Like slapstick stuff, because George, the dad, I remember his name, is trying to get ready for a, like a fancy dinner. He says, I can't show my face in the office again if I don't go to this dinner, so I guess it's a work do. He's looking for his... The bib thing. Like a special, like a fancy person bib. Yeah, and he finds that the boys have used it to make a treasure map. And the idea is that these kids are just deeply obsessed with the lore of Peter Pan. And he's not having any of it. And in particular, he feels like Wendy is too old to still be telling these stories and playing these games. The character I'm surprised you haven't picked out is Nana the dog, oh, who yeah. is also just like fuming at this family. There's some great comedy there where where Nana is trying to pile all those little toy bricks up, and they keep getting knocked over, and she's getting increasingly exasperated. I have a question regarding Nana the dog. Please. When she first comes in, she is carrying like a tray of tonics for the children. What is that? What's the tonic? I think you just used to give kids, like, medicine, like cod liver oil and stuff like that. Just, I'll oh, get it down here. It'll do- I guess it's like taking your, your vitamins. Just get it down here. It'll do you some good. I would die for Nana. <laughs> Wouldn't you love a Nana? And Okay, so the deal with Nana is she is a dog, but she is also... That's the first thing, number one. Okay, dog. we've established, yeah. yeah. Number two, she's a nursemaid. Like, she looks after the children. And this is amazing to me because... This is supposed to be a story, because obviously Nana goes back to the Barry, about kids who get whisked away to a magical fantasy world. One of the most fantastical things in this movie is the dog who is also a nursemaid and who just lives with them and is completely anthropomorphized. And that's not just Disney, that's in the Barry as well. Like, she is a member of the family. I know you might think, oh, Disney have made it more human like they do with a lot of their animals, like they do with the mice in Cinderella. But even in the Barry, she is a member of the family who has her own thoughts and opinions on everything. This should be a DreamWorks movie. Right, give us the dog who wants to be a nursemaid. (laughs) Pixar, Ratatouille kind of thing. Although actually, there was a version of the Disney movie where Nana was going to A, go to Neverland with them, and B, narrate the movie. What? I mean, Nana nearly goes to Neverland. She kind of floats up in the sky and then she's left there, presumably, to just like float above the sky like a balloon. Yeah, she doesn't speak. I think that's pretty Mm. crucial to point out if you haven't seen the movie, but um, (laughs) she's very expressive. Very expressive and over everyone's nonsense right from the off. The main thing that we kind of learn in this opening sequence, as well as the dynamic of the family, is, as you say, Wendy is growing up. There's that line, the child is growing up, it's high time she has a room of her own. So she's been sharing a room with her little brothers and they all share these kind of fantasy stories of Peter Pan. But 
Wendy is kind of approaching independence, she's going to need her own space, and that means kind of letting go a bit of the Peter Pan thing. So as the parents head out, this is going to be Wendy's sort of last night to go on a Peter Pan adventure. She asks her mum not to lock the window, and she knows that Peter Pan is going to come because she has stolen his shadow, and she thinks he's going to come back for it. And I, that introductory shot of Peter Pan is great. When the parents head out of the house, and Peter Pan is like skulking on the roof of the house, it pans to him no pun intended, and you get this great shot of his silhouette on the roof. It's it's kind of creepy. It's very creepy, especially because you then get a close-up of his face shrouded in shadow, and then Tinkerbell zips past, and it illuminates just his smile. It's like a big, sinister, like, glowing red smile. So creepy. The mum's saying, are you sure it's going to be safe? And George is like, oh, what? You're scared of Peter Pan? It's all made up. And then the mother's like, yeah, but it, it must have been someone. So in the mother's mind, Wendy has been approached by somebody. That's what that is. Mm. She thinks that Wendy has been approached by somebody. So she's genuinely worried that someone is going to come in and do bad things. And that is followed up by this very sinister shot of Peter, who also looks down and sees Nana tied up in the garden, because just prior to this, George has tied up Nana because he's an awful bastard. <laughs> it's almost as if Peter's looking at Nana thinking, all right, Coast that's clear. not going to stop me getting in. Coast is clear, I'm getting in there. And, you know, he's not up to no good, really, but he is a very sinister figure. The way that he is established mm. is eerie. Yeah, there is a real vibe of, don't be alarmed, but there may be a boogeyman or boogeyman in the house. <laughs> a Peter Pan or Peter the pen in the house <laughs> and he does enter the house he enters through the window that was left unlocked bringing tinkerbell with him and we'll get to tinkerbell in a minute but there's um a really great sequence there where peter pan is chasing down his shadow it feels like such an imaginative construct him chasing his shadow around the room and the idea that wendy physically stitches his shadow back to his feet to kind of reunite them i love that stuff you get a great sense of wendy's character in this thing as well and her relationship with peter she basically is smitten with Peter. She has not met him before, but she has this imagined version of what he is. And she's almost, it looks like, falling in love. And she's like, while she's walking around trying to stitch up his shadow, she's like monologuing in this very kind of flighty way, jumping from one topic to the next. And it's like, she, she's smitten with this guy. And I think the voice actors here have a great dynamic. It's uh, it's Catherine Beaumont from Alice in Wonderland. Mm. And it's Bobby Driscoll, who has not been in an animated film yet, although he popped up in the live-action ranch sequence in um, Picos Bill. It was Melody Time. He popped up in that. And he's been in all the first three of Walt's live-action movies, which is Song of the South, So Dear to My Heart, and Treasure Island is the lead in all of those. So this is Bobby Driscoll in his animated debut. Both great castings, I think. Yeah, and uh, like with Peter, he's a little toe rag. I'm trying not to swear so much on this podcast, but like that's like that bit where he goes, girls talk too much. He's a proper little like rambunctious little lad, isn't he? Yeah, he's sexist in that way that boys tend to be. Yeah, very, it's very casual and it feels relatively inoffensive, but you do get a sense of like who he is and what his perspective is, that he is yet a very sort of stubbornly boyish character, you know? And he doesn't care about anyone or anything, really. The way that he approaches other people, I think, is very distinct and I think does speak to the fact that he is this immortal being who has had the mindset of a child for God knows how long. And he doesn't quite see Wendy's, like, personhood. And, and this comes through a lot more later when bad things happen to Wendy and Peter kind of brushes it off. Yeah, that whole immortal child thing feels like an absolute curse. 
<laughs> Especially when you look at Peter Pan. He's, he's got a lot of growth to do, that guy. Oh, well, wait till we get out of the books. In terms of the characters we meet here, I have to say the one that surprised me the most is Tinkerbell. You get, again, an immediate sense of who this character is. Right, as somebody who basically hadn't really seen this film, but is aware of the wider Tinkerbell lore, the fact that that is an enduring character, the qualities that I associate with Tinkerbell is that that character is kind of sweet and a bit mischievous. She is grumpy and she's an irascible character, which I completely didn't expect, but you feel that right from the off. It grows through the film as well. Yeah, silent character. So it's all all through expression and through other devices. She'll turn red when she's angry in a classic animated style. And when she does that, it brings to mind something that Barry says of fairies in the novel, which is that fairies only have room for one feeling at a time. And that's why she's so awful. Because when she's feeling angry or envious or whatever, because she's so small, she doesn't have room to be happy at the same time. But yeah, Tinkerbell is up there as one of the most remediated Disney characters ever. So my image of her, what that is, kind of what she became over time. Yeah, you've got the Mickey Mouse guys... Then the Winnie the Pooh gang, I think that's probably your top two kind of franchises. Characters who you see constantly in different media and on merchandise, etc. Then I would say Tinkerbell, close third. And like Mickey Mouse, who started off as a very cheeky, very naughty kind of guy, abusing animals in Steamboat Willie, he gets the edges sanded right off. And I think more or less the same things happen to Tinkerbell over time. Yeah, yeah, she was a much spikier character than I expected going into this film. But it's partly Tinkerbell's magic that allows the plot to move on, because having met all of the kids, Peter Pan takes the darlings to Neverland. This whole construct that this combination of magic and happiness and imagination makes the kids fly, I can't think of anything more Disney than that. Like a sprinkling of fairy dust, thinking happy thoughts, and using your imagination to go to this Neverland. That is peak Disney. That's what the movies do to us, that's what the theme parks allow us to do. Faith, Trust and Pixie Dust is the phrase, I believe. Although Ooh, I, I like that. It's Faith, Trust and Pixie Dust, and I'm pretty sure they say that in the movie. They definitely say that in the Barry, but here, happiness in, in the song, think a happy little thought, is very much at the forefront as well. The Pixie Dust was added by Barry at the request of parents because they didn't want the kids to think that they could just fly. Oh, God. <laughs> just by having faith and trust, so you need that extra little... Pixie Dust. Yeah, they could have maybe clarified how important an element the pixie dust was. But yeah, that is a classic song as well, isn't it? The he can fly, he can fly, he can fly. That was firmly embedded in my brain from somewhere, probably from like a Disney album or something. Yeah, and the classic sequence, because now we get maybe the most iconic moment from the film, which is them flying over the streets of London. Yeah, which again, all that london stuff just spoke to me. I loved it. See, you're a London boy, I'm not a London boy. <laughs> I'm like, what's that clock? Where'd that come from? That's a big old clock. I don't I don't know what any of these things are. Yeah. A couple of bridges, looks like. Mm-hmm. Do you want bridges? Come to the North East, mate. You're looking at that just like, hey, we have all of that in Sunderland and Newcastle. <laughs> yeah. Like, big deal. Uh, the thing that I liked is that, obviously, this whole notion of the second star to the right that actually is Neverland. The second star to the right, as you kind of zoom into it, that is Neverland itself. It kind of reminded me of Thor, of the like different oh, yeah. realms of the cosmos. The Bifrost. The Bifrost, yeah. This is our Marvel <laughs> moment for today, for this week. Mm-hmm. Got to shoehorn one in somewhere. <laughs> yeah, because when you get to Neverland, it's enshrouded by rainbows as well. So absolute mm-hmm. bludgeoning you with iconic imagery here, because you get landing on Big Ben is spectacular. The contrast 
contrast, obviously, between the glow of the clock and the silhouettes of the characters against the clock hands. Beautiful, pervasive image. And then that opening map of Neverland, that bird's eye view of Neverland. I looked at that and I was like, that looks like a map of Disneyland, of a theme park. And the way that they look at it and go like, oh, it's Pirate Cove, there's the mermaid bit. That's how I feel looking at the map when I'm going to a theme park. I'm like, yes. Yeah, the various little iconic elements of each area are very prominent. So so speaking of Mary Blair then, I don't know who designed this map, but I do know that there is Mary Blair concept art of it, which... I really love the version that ended up in the film, but the Mary Blair version is also very distinct, and I think you can see, oh right, the background artists are past the point of paying any attention to what Blair has laid out in front of them. I'm really interested to see her version, and yeah, see them side by side as well, but actually before we get to that kind of map moment, our first introduction really to Neverland is to the pirates, to Captain Hook and Mr. Smee. There was a song in there, or a kind of refrain, that I don't know if this was like a Mandela effect thing or if they're just separate songs but they're saying the life of a pirate for me rather than a pirate's life for me is that a separate song or is that one of these weird things is it like hi-ho where the main instance of hi-ho hi-ho it's home from work we go so yo-ho yo-ho a pirate's life for me that's off the past the caribbean ride was that ever like an authentic pirate song i don't think so I don't think so. You couldn't put it up next to, like, The Weller Man, for example. (laughs) Right, Your Whole Pirate's Life for Me was written for the ride Pirates of the Caribbean. No way, that's crazy. Uh, So yeah, separate song then. I was listening to that being like, oh, the life of a pirate for me? That sounds just so long-winded compared to a pirate's life for me. Much cleaner, the second one. Lose the third, just call it Facebook, it's much cleaner. I really liked our introduction to Captain Hook, where he's smoking two cigars at once. What an (laughs) absolute lad. One cigar isn't enough. He's got to smoke two at a time, baby. What do you think of Captain Hook then, as a a character, as a guy? I said Hook there, I'm I'm code switching. Look what you've done to me. Yeah, Captain I'm so sorry. What, what have I done to you? What do you think of him? I thought Hook was a really fun character. I really like how, on the one hand, he's like really angry and fearsome, but when he comes face to face with the crocodile, he's actually a bit of a coward and a scaredy cat as well. I, I liked that he has different registers. Um, he gets to really play into that villainy, but he's not a complete villain all the time, and he has things that he's scared of as well. And I, as much as I want to see the hand-chopping cut release the Peter Pan cutting off Hook's hand. Cut. Cut. <laughs> Again, as an introduction to the character of like, here's this bad guy and the and your hero chopped his hand off and fed it to a crocodile. That's a pretty decent grievance for Hook to have. This is true, although you get the impression that he was maybe a bit of a no-good Nick prior to that. Peter's a bit immoral, but I don't think he's out there just chopping hands off people for no reason. I think Hook was up to no good. Hook was up to no good. Oh, whatever. (laughs) He does have layers as a character, right? Because you've got the sinister guy, the the villainous evil guy who is almost... I I don't want to say frightening, especially coming off the back of, like, Lady Tremaine and the Queen from Snow White. But he's threatening, maybe would be the word. And then you get the comedic version, which shows up, especially whenever the crocodile's involved. And it, in some scenes, oscillates very quickly between those two. And the, the story that is told behind that is that he was animated by Frank Thomas, who was our first Nine Old Man of the Week, and he was getting different notes from different people, basically. He had the story guys telling him to make him very menacing, and he had the directors telling him to make him very comedic. And what was like, do whatever you want, Frank, do whatever you want. And he, he tried to find this middle ground, and... 
when you read reviews and stuff, it's quite often critiqued. People don't find the Hoot character cohesive enough. I quite like that kind of character because it feels like it's a put on and that adds depth. It feels like he is just this like wacky, goofy idiot who's really trying this veneer of threat and not quite getting there. And all the kids are constantly taking the piss out of him. They're always calling him a codfish or whatever. You can't even really threaten these kids. So it doesn't maybe necessarily work that well as the main villain for a movie, but as a character... I quite like where they go with it. Yeah, I agree. I think that adds layers. I thought it was kind of fun. I'm not going to dwell on this. It was just a fun moment, but I like when Smee shaves that seagull's butt. Smee is Hook's little sidekick, and one of his many duties is to shave Captain Hook, and he puts like a rag over Hook's face and then turns around to get the shaving powder. When he turns back, there's a seagull sitting on Hook's head, and he shaves the seagull's backside. And meanwhile, I'm laughing my head off. And the reason why I've stuck with this for a little bit is because this is our first antic, I would say. Yeah, solid antic. This is our first bit of, like, zero story relevance. It's really just a pure antic for comedic value. This is so much better than the Diet Tom and Jerry crap from Cinderella. I'm not going to say it's, like, rude. It's not R-rated or anything, but it's a little bit cheeky, isn't it? It's a little bit naughty. I don't know, it's just genuinely funny. I don't. Maybe I just find butts funny because I'm the boy who'd never grow up, but it's, <laughs> it's got more bite to it. I'd agree with you. It's a great jape. Shaving butts. Still funny over 50 years later, you know? Some things just don't grow old, including us. Oh, oh, Ben. Uh, <gasps> oh my god. What uh, could that be? The Nine Old Man of the Week alarm? It's the Nine Old Man of the Week alarm because... Yay. I want to talk a little bit more about our friend Smee. Smee was animated by a guy called Ollie Johnston. And there was a few different movies I was looking at, like which one am I going to bring Ollie Johnston in for? And I went with this because he was very often cast with Frank Thomas. When Frank Thomas is doing Lady Tremaine, Ollie Johnston's doing The Stepsisters. And here we have Frank Thomas doing Hook, and Ollie Johnston is doing Smee. So they were kind of seen as this double act who brought different things to the table. Prior to this, Johnson had animated Alice, so Walt wanted to give him Wendy. But Ollie didn't want to do something so similar and something so mundane. He didn't want to do a main character again. So he thought he had more to bring to the character of Smee. Johnson is a guy who, when you read about what people see as his specific skill set, it's that he can create these layers in a character, multiple layers of emotion. He's not just putting the broadest, most obvious emotion out there. So, for example, he animated Pinocchio in the scene where his nose is growing and he's trying to project innocence while also inwardly feeling very guilty. So you've got these multiple layers of emotion. And Smee is a version of that because he is a character who, even more so than Captain Who, you can see he's got this desire to be somewhat threatening. He tries to put on, especially when he's dealing with Tinkerbell later on in the film, he's trying to be a threat, but he also is just a completely nice guy. And he wants everyone to be happy. He wants the other pirates to be happy. He wants the kids to be happy when they get kidnapped. So you get these layers. And then I also want to talk about him in relation to Frank Thomas, because these guys just have such a great story, Ben. They... Let's see if this sounds familiar. They went to university together and they met working on the student magazine. 
Oh my god, that's us. That's our origin story. It's the story of Sam and Ben, were the Frank and Ollie of the 2010s. So they both kind of made it big at Disney at the same time. And when they did, and I'm not proposing that we do this, they bought a plot of land and built two houses on it and they live next to each other for the rest <laughs> of their lives. Look, I'm down if you are. Um, yeah, with the wives and family and everything. And then they went on to write a book called The Illusion of Life, which is kind of the solidification of the Disney animation principles. So every animation course at university will have the illusion of life prescribed on it. And they had a cameo together when they were both the last surviving nine old men. They had a cameo together in the movie The Incredibles. Oh, that's cool. It's when the the Incredibles beat the big robot at the end. You get a shot of two old men who look like Frank and Ollie. And I think it's Frank says, that's the way to do it. That's old school. And then Ollie says, yep, no school like the old school. So just a beautiful little nod to these two guys who spent the whole lives together and who defined, helped define character animation at this company. Yeah, they are there representing the old school in this big, shiny CGI Pixar movie. I just think that's beautiful. So, that's Ollie Johnston. That's our Nine Old Man of the Week. Oh, I love that. That's amazing. Give us a, a honk to oh, take yes, us yes. out. <laughs> that's how the listeners know. They're not going to know that's the end of Nine Old Man of the Week if they don't hear the alarm. We'd still be doing it. <laughs> Would it be at the end of the podcast like, it's weird, they're still on the Nine Old Man of the Week. They'd be going to bed, losing sleep, thinking, it's still the Nine Old Man of the Week. I'm in it right now. So as our heroes enter Neverland, I mentioned that Tinkerbell wasn't at all what I expected her to be in this film, but she straight up tries to get the Lost Boys to kill Wendy? Tinkerbell is jealous of Wendy, she's absolutely fuming, and her idea of mischief is straight up murder. I never expected that. Yeah, she tells them that Wendy's a bird, and that Peter has told them to hunt the bird, and then when Peter's like, you know you could have got her killed, right? Tink's like nodding, like, oh yeah. Like, yeah. That's what I wanted. Yeah. It's just because she's very jealous of the time that Peter is now spending with Wendy. And so one of the issues with this movie, there are other perhaps more evident issues that we're going to come to. This isn't a great Disney movie for female characters, I feel. Tinkerbell is a very particular version of femininity, who is contrasted with Wendy's very particular version of femininity. It's the contrast between the maternal woman who gets to be the mother and who is good and sweet, and then the woman who is more overtly sexualized, at least in a visual sense. Obviously, all the characters in this are chaste. And she is envious, she is jealous, she is covetous. And yeah, you take issue with it, right? You have basically two female characters in this, and they hate each other, and they're jealous of each other, or I know that's kind of more one-sided on Tinkerbell's part. I know it's 1953, but come on. But you also have the mermaids, who are even worse than Tinkerbell, who try to drown Wendy openly, which is a great line. It's funny, because um, they're splashing Wendy with water, and then Peter's like, hey, come on, stop it. And then she goes, one of the mermaids goes, oh, we were only trying to drown her. Which, you know, <laughs> no we'll biggie. laugh, but again, it's these characters who are all children, with the mermaids and Tinkerbell, it's ambiguous, but Pete and Wendy are children, engaged in these very adolescent love triangles, fraught with envy, and then you get Tiger Lily as well, who again, we'll get to, but she doesn't even speak, she says one line, and it's when she's about to drown, and it's, hell. She's about to scream help, and then she gets muffled by the water entering her lungs, and that's all she says. So she is not only just there as a damsel in distress, but then later she also sparks jealousy in Wendy. All of these women are either very thinly characterised and or exist only to be jealous of Peter Pan, or to be jealous of the other women interacting with Peter Pan. 
Not good. So at the same time, we meet the Lost Boys, who I also hate. I have so many questions. Did they kill those animals and just decide to wear the skins themselves? I, 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 like, I don't want to know. I'd rather imagine they just got those onesies from Primark or something. But this is a film that comes up at the beginning with a warning of the outdated cultural depictions. And it hits in a big way with the depiction of, as they say, the Indians, which they are kind of caricatures of Native American stereotypes so I think we're going to refer to them as Native American stereotypes even though in the film they call them Indians that is the term that they use and it kind of comes up in one of the most famous songs or moments which is the following the leader sequence in that the Lost Boys and the Darling Kids are going out on a hunt basically to find these Native American characters who are described as quite savage and when we see them they are drawn in an extremely cartoonish way they're drawn without facial expressions there's feathers and axes everywhere all of these signifiers it's so overblown and when you meet the chief of the tribe he's made up to look like the devil effectively with horns just the way he's animated, the way he uses hand gestures, his broken speech. Bright red skin. Bright red skin. It's the same tropes that we saw in some of the Wild West stuff, but it's really, it's such a key kind of part of the adventure in the plot here. And I think it's, I mean, especially as you watch it now, completely unacceptable. I think it also is interesting because the way it's presented even within this film is that it's all kind of a childhood game. And to me, it highlights how many sort of classic adventure narratives are really rooted in these colonialist notions. I mean, that's highlighted by the fact that we've got John, fairly certain, who is that the older darling brother is leading the Lost Boys. They immediately elect him leader for some reason, even though they've never met him before. And he's got his top hat, and he's got like his umbrella, and he is almost the caricature of like a posh English colonialist, right? He's the epitome of of an Englishman, the caricature of an Englishman, and he's the one leading this hunt, which I think furthers the colonial overtones. And then just the fact that the way that these characters are presented is different. Let's talk about Dumbo, right? It's different to Dumbo. I don't want to say that one's better than the other because what a worthless conversation that would be to have. In Dumbo, the depiction of black characters is linked to that movie's setting in contemporary America. So I I talked about this on the podcast. It reads as racist because it's effectively critiquing and dehumanizing the contemporary African-American. That's who the Crows represent. That's who the Roustabouts literally are. This isn't that. This is something different. This is figuring the Native American characters as a fantasy archetype who live on this magical island of childhood wonder alongside pirates and mermaids and fairies. Like, they're not even real. They've been completely stripped of historical and geographic context. And we're going to call them Native Americans, for lack of a better word, but they aren't Native Americans. They aren't native to America. They don't reflect anything that has ever existed. They've been completely stripped of it. And they are just these fantastical figures. They are imaginary characters from an imaginary world who live alongside all these other imaginary archetypes. And it just does such violence to the dignity and the history of the contemporary Native American in a different way to what Dumbo is doing. So I'm not saying one's better or worse, but I think it's worth talking about how they're different and the different ways in which these movies commit that kind of cultural violence. 
Yeah, and I think that's the thing. Like you said, they are not specifically referenced as Native American characters, but they are clearly drawn from that. Oh, of course, yeah. And it's it's that whole idea of, of cultural appropriation that these are signifiers that we can just play around with and divorce them from their context, treat them without any kind of dignity or respect, uh, and that these characters are highly exoticized, uh, portrayed as kind of wild that even when our heroes are kind of having a good time with those characters, they are embodying these stereotypical traits. And there's that whole song, What Makes the Red Man Red. You've got Peter Pan wearing the headdress that he's given and ululating like he's some kind of dickhead at Coachella or something. It's so weird to me that after Saludos Amigos, which felt like it actually had its heart in the right place in trying to present uh, South American and Latin American cultures, indigenous cultures and tribal cultures in a fairly straight up way, in a sort of celebratory way and in a quite an honest way, that a few films later you get this, which just feels massively appropriating all of those tropes and signifiers. And that's what the scene, the camp is about. It's almost like a mirror of what they were trying to do in Saludos Amigos, because this is a scene in which the children are sat in front of all these Native American characters who then go on to perform all of these stereotypes to them in the What Makes the Red Man Red song, which is done under the auspices of teaching them about their culture, but it's all made up. It's all completely fabricated nonsense, just complete like nonsense language. And then even just the central premise, what makes the red man red, it's just totally positioning them as the other. I also feel like I should say that since we talked about Dumbo, there was a little bit of an uproar online because Disney went a step further from just putting up these disclaimers at the start on Disney+. Plus. They made it so that on a child's only account, these films, Dumbo and Peter Pan and a couple of others, would be inaccessible. You, you would not be able to watch them unless you were an adult. And people were like, oh, it's being censored. They're taking them away. They're telling us what our kids should be watching. And that's not what it was. They were just giving parents the ability to decide whether their kids should watch this. And this is the perfect example of why that's necessary. Because for like a hundred years, going back to when this play came out, because it's just the same in the play, it's the same in the novel, this has been, especially in the UK, the first exposure for generations of people to Native American culture. Where else are we going to see it, apart from in movies? You know, it's not that's not a demographic that proliferates in this country, obviously. This is our first experience. Even when I was younger, in a years removed from this movie, you still heard, like, oh, let's play Cowboys and Indians or whatever. All you got of Native American culture was from these kinds of texts, and from Peter Pan in particular. And that affects people's judgments of these cultures. Movies aren't just movies. They have impact, and therefore we as parents, as older people, have a responsibility to contextualise these things for younger generations and not just let them stumble upon them and have that colour, that knowledge of these cultures going forward. I am completely with you on that. And and this is one of those things that like, when we get into films like this, we have to take the time to stop and to assess what these films are doing and to look at this stuff. And, and that means sort of stopping the fun of just having a fun chat about these films. But that is, for me, the experience of watching this as well. That oh, yeah. In essence, Peter Pan is a fun adventure story, but you hit this stuff and you're like, this isn't fun. It's uncomfortable to watch. It's so... Like you said, because of the fantasy context, it's not inherent to the story at all. So as you watch it now, looking back on this film, I, it's a fun adventure story, but when you get to this bit of it, which is quite embedded into everything else going on in the film, it's not fun to watch. No, it makes me so angry. And that's me saying that you can't imagine how it would make the people who actually belong to these groups feel. 
Anyway, to head back to the adventure plot, uh, at this point the plot kind of kicks into gear. Captain Hook has captured Tiger Lily, who is the chief's daughter, and they're heading to Skull Rock, where as soon as I saw Skull Rock, I was like, where is King Kong? Looks like Skull Island. It's a big rock in the shape of a skull. And at this point, Hook faces off not only against Peter Pan, who's having a lot of fun kind of tricking Smee and doing impressions of, of Captain Hook. That's quite a fun sequence. But the crocodile comes again for Hook, eats all of his clothes off. And uh, I mean, I couldn't help but think, seeing this crocodile, is this Hook basically trying to face up to the ticking clock of death in a world (laughs) where everyone is a child and the gaping, snapping jaws with a tick-tocking sound is the thing that haunts him? That's all I could think of what this crocodile could represent. Ben, that is great. That is an essay right there. That's a (laughs) potential first right there, man. So, so the crocodile swallowed an alarm clock. Um, the crocodile <laughs> swallowed an alarm clock at an undisclosed earlier date, and therefore, almost in a proto-Jaws kind of sense, who knows when he's coming? No wonder the kids are obsessed with the Peter Pan lore, because it's kind of amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's deep, right? And he gets such a good little motif. That... And, you know teams up with the TikTok, and then you get Hook's moustache ticks up like a clock mm. whenever you hear it. Oh man, great stuff. The crocodile's eyes bounce up and down in time to the music as well. He looks Ben's just um, done it. They've been like bogging my eyes. Uh, I also like how Captain Hook's eyes kind of bog in time with the ticking clock. Uh, the crocodile has a name by the way, he's called TikTok. I mean, the kids are going to love him. Gen Z's going to be all over it. Yeah, he likes to do little like lip sync videos and stuff, you know. You feel like he would be, yeah, they should be doing that song on the app TikTok, doing little like Bobby dances to. So this is like probably the most extreme example of this dichotomy we've got in Captain Hook's character between the serious sinister guy who one minute is putting up a pretty good fight against Peter Pan, he's going to run him through with a sword, he's absolutely raging, and then the next minute he's literally the Disney character Goofy running away from a crocodile, getting his pants shredded up and like getting trapped in his mouth and having to squeeze his way out and just constantly screaming. There's bits where he runs over the water. There's a bit where he does that classic cartoon thing where you go off a edge and then don't fall until you've realised you're in midair when you look down and you fall. He becomes such a cartoon character in a way that you don't tend to see in these like full-length Disney movies. Yeah, he's got a bit of a wily e. Coyote vibe at points. Yeah, that's a really good point of comparison. And like again, we're skipping ahead, but they do almost this exact same scene right at the end of the movie where he finally gets defeated and he gets eaten by the croc and then he bursts out his mouth and runs away. There are two extended sequences in this movie of a guy getting chewed up by a crocodile and screaming. And that's the kind of antics I want. That's if we're gonna have space devoted to shenanigans in these movies, have them be plot relevant and have them be gnarly. And have them involve Sam's favourite crocodile. I can tell you love that guy. I do. I feel like I'm really getting into the, the whole reptile and amphibian sector of the animal kingdom as we go through this yeah. podcast. I'm discovering something about myself. Mr. Toad, Bill the Lizard, all yeah. your favourite guys. Yeah, so Hook's had all of his clothes eaten off. He's recovering in his ship. He's cursing Peter Pan. There's a fun moment where Smee uh, hammers Hook in the head by accident. You get a real sound. Again, very cartoony. Very cartoony. Uh, this is the point as well where Captain Hook becomes Captain Misogyny, where he hatches this plan based on Tinkerbell's jealousy of Wendy, where he says, 
jealous female can be tricked into anything. I mean, hey, at least he's cast as the villain, but he calls her the wench. Like, what the hell? Very pirate, though, isn't it? Very pirate. But he decides to exploit Tinkerbell's heartbreak over Wendy. Tinkerbell tells Hook where Peter Pan's hiding place is, and then he locks her away anyway. She gives up the info and she gets locked away. Now, at this point, we go back to Wendy and the Lost Boys, and Wendy, we can already see that she's starting to grow up. She sings this song about mothers and what mothers mean, and I have to say, this pissed me off, because it was like, the point that Wendy's growing up, then it all becomes about like being a mum and what being a mum means, and it's like, she can be more than either a literal kid or, okay, now I'm all about being a mum. That feeds into the Peter Pan character as well because we get a shift in her relationship with him because at the start of the movie she's very smitten with him. She's in love with Peter Pan. That's what she goes to Neverland for. Peter Pan has always wanted her to be a mother all the way through. He decides he's going to take her because she's the best at telling stories and she wants her to tell stories to the Lost Boys and look after the Lost Boys. He wants a mother. That's what he creates. He's the boy who never grows up. He's got no... Oh man, Peter Pan. He's he's a problematic little dude. Yeah, so he's never been interested in her romantically at all. She was projecting that onto him because she was smitten with him. So her relationship with Peter is shifting as well to that of a mother. And you can see it in her body language. You can hear it in her voice. It's a great piece of acting, this sequence, I think, on the part of Beaumont and the animators. Even if it is maybe derailing Wendy's character a little bit, it just starts shoehorning her right into that role. But... It's real character development. It is. I mean, she's the one who accepts that after this night, they can't stay in in Neverland. She's the one who's kind of giving up Neverland, whereas the younger brothers are basically saying, no, why why can't we leave? She's the one who understands that actually she can't stay in Neverland forever, which I thought was quite a perceptive little moment in her journey through this film of of this being her last night, effectively, of being a little kid. But the trigger moment for that still goes back to this romantic jealousy that runs all the way through, because the thing that initially turns her off the idea of staying in Neverland with Peter Pan is when she sees him dancing with Tiger Lily at the camp. So it all goes into that. It's like not only is she going straight from young smitten girl right through to mother, but it's via this kind of stereotypical envious quality, which wasn't really part of her character up until that point either. It was something Tinkerbell did, something the mermaids did. It wasn't something Wendy did. Yeah, so, I mean, Wendy, justice for Wendy, Wendy deserved better. Yeah, it's, it's a movie with a very limited view of what women can do and what women can feel. And, I mean, from there, it basically all goes back to the boys again. The Lost Boys have been captured by the pirates. They're given this ultimatum. They can either join the pirates and get tattoos, or they have to walk the plank. Uh, and, it, and all the kids are up for it. They're like, yeah, we'll join the pirates. Sounds kind of fun. It's Wendy who stops them saying like, no, you shouldn't do this. And, and Peter Pan's going to save you. Except Hook has set his plan into motion. And that plan is to send Peter Pan a letter bomb <laughs> saying it's a <laughs> present from Wendy. Thankfully, Tinkerbell escapes and dashes off to save Peter Pan just in time. Although I have to say, when that package exploded, I was like, there is no way Peter and Tinkerbell survived that explosion. It was a huge boom. They should have been in bits. Well, okay, so Tinkerbell is magic. Okay, yeah, that tracks. But what about Peter Pan? Yeah, he should have been bits. He should have been the bits that never grow up. Oh my god, that's so dark. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, thankfully, they both survive. Peter Pan, he comes and saves the day. He fights with Captain Hook. There's some quite nice little beats in there. I like that Peter cuts the feather from Hook's hat. 
there's a moment where Peter Pan sort of like pings off the ropes of the ship and boots Captain Hook in the face with both feet. It's like a real wrestling move. And there's a nice shot as well, actually, of Captain Hook kind of climbing straight towards the camera, effectively. It's a good shot. Sinister again, villainous. Sinister, and the perspective of it felt like something we haven't seen in any of these other Disney movies. He's like, yeah, sort of crawling towards the camera. Mm, dynamic cinematography. It's just quite a fun action sequence. I don't think it's like spectacular. I don't think it's an all-time great but you have this nice showdown between them and as you say we have a rerun of that classic hook being eaten by the uh, crocodile so good they just did it again and at the end peter pan saves the day the darling children have to go to london and thankfully they have captain hook's ship which with a little bit of pixie dust the ship turns yellow and it flies all the way back to london that shit must have been thinking some really happy thoughts. <laughs> right, okay, because there's more than just the pixie does. They established this at the beginning. Is this a sentient ship? So many questions, so little time. But this had quite an Alice in Wonderland vibe to me. As we said from the beginning, it's about these characters who are living quite a normal life, these children who dream of a better, imaginative place, and they go there, and at the end they return to the real world, kind of thankful to be back in normality. Wendy, when she gets back, she says she's ready to grow up now. But there's this lovely little end note in that you have this cloud in the shape of a ship flying through the sky, flying past the moon as well, and everybody sees it. The adults see it too, and the dad says he's seen it before. It's almost like this whole experience is a rite of passage before you grow up that as an adult you just don't remember it anymore until you're faced with the ship in the sky and I wondered with that image of the ship cloud in front of the moon, do you think that's a conscious echo of E.T.? You mean do you think E.T. is a conscious echo of that? (laughs) Yeah, the other way around. Do you think Spielberg was riffing off Peter Pan with that? I got such an E.T. vibe from that, especially like E.T. is a coming of age movie too. Yeah, okay, I can see that. E.T. being the Peter Pan figure who whisks Wendy away, it helps him fly, I guess. He levitates the bikes like Tinkerbell does. Yeah, all right, I'm with that. And you get that return to the cyclicality of it as well, because the, the dad says, it reminds me of a ship that I saw once before, a long time ago when I was very young. So it comes back to the idea that this has happened once and it will happen again. It's just like Battlestar Galactica told us. Now we've reached Discarded, the section of the show where we go back to the original tale that the filmmakers drew from, looking at all the weird, creepy things that Disney took one look at and said, no way man, we're not doing that. Sam, you've already alluded to the fact that there are some creepy things in the original Barry Law. For some reason the phrase Barry Law is really fun to say. It sounds like a bloke, yeah. Yeah, so what creepy stuff did our old pal Barry have in his back pocket? So we're calling this Discarded, but really a lot of this is Barry Carded. (laughs) it's the stuff that is in the original story from the novel Little White Bird which didn't make it into the play and in fact very little of it did the boy who doesn't grow up that's there we've got that that's safe but in this version Peter Pan is a seven year old baby what? sorry no hang on no a seven day old baby (laughs) he will also be seven years old eventually because he doesn't grow up but, but he won't be a baby. He is stuck at... No, he'll always be a baby. What? He's stuck at the point of being a seven-day-old baby. Oh, that's horrifying in Forever. itself. So he's the boy who doesn't grow up, but his starting point is much younger. Oh, God. <laughs> and he lives in Kensington Gardens rather than Neverland. 
And he um, makes friends with the birds because babies are part birds. That's a bit of law that didn't transition. He can talk to the birds and that's how initially he can fly as well because he's part birds. But he loses his ability to fly and he starts sailing around Kensington Garden in a big bird's nest. And then later he gets a magic goat that he can ride on. I mean, why not? What the hell? Anything goes with the seven-day-old forever baby. Yeah. (laughs) So his job in Kensington Gardens is to find babies who've been lost. So whenever someone loses a baby in Kensington Gardens, which apparently was common, that they they would just fall out the pram. Barry says that it very rarely happens to girls because they're much cleverer. So a little bit of, I guess, hashtag feminism there. Woke bro Barry. (laughs) So his job is to find the babies who have been lost and bury them. What? Yeah, you took a pause there, didn't you? You did a real take. Yeah, well... Oh, I can't, my brain can't wrap around this. Just just keep going. He finds the babies and, and buries them. He makes little graves for them. But oh. the, the implication is that he's doing this regardless of whether or not they are still alive. Oh, why is this so creepy? And it ends, how strange for parents when they hurry into the gardens at the opening of the gates, looking for their lost one, to find instead the sweetest little tombstone. I do hope that Peter is not too ready with his spade. So the implication is firmly that Peter Pan is often burying these children while they're still alive. Oh my god, he's like an absolute little villain. Horrible, horrible bloke. Well, I think he misunderstands the scenario, maybe. Like, he finds these babies and he thinks, oh, they're dead, that's over for them, let's bury them. I mean, it's it's completely messed up, no matter how you look at it. Who would write that story? What? Why would? Why is that a story anyone would want to tell? Well, it was barricaded because it did not make it <laughs> yeah. into the play by any stretch. He kept the boy doesn't grow up. He kept the idea of flight, and in the play, the lost boys were lost in Kensington Gardens. We don't get right. that far in the film, but they were lost in Kensington Gardens. So that's the biggest whole discarded stuff. I mean, that's a lot in many, many, <laughs> in many ways. That's awful. I had no expectations for how horrifying that was going to be. Yeah, that might be it. I don't think we're ever going to get a worse discarded than that. No. There's been some stuff that's come close, but I don't think we're ever going to get one that tops that. That is bleak as hell. Okay then, so that is how he came up with the play. That's how he led into the play. Is there anything from the play that then didn't make it into the Disney one? Well, Hook is quite a different character. As was said, Frank Thomas had quite a lot of leeway with how he built that character up, assisted by the voice actor Hans Conrad, who I think does an absolutely spectacular job. The version that they come up with is quite different from what's in the book. He is very specifically, and I think one of the reasons why this was left out is because it's very specifically English, he was ear eaten boy and an Oxford boy. And that is something that Barry revisits consistently whenever he's talking about Captain Hook. He's very much a parody of that particular kind of English public school boy. And the way that that most often manifests is that he's obsessed with the idea of good form and bad form. I think that's just too specifically English, but it's the idea that so whenever Peter Pan does something underhand in a fight, Hook is like, oh, that's bad form. You can't do that. And actually, there's a bit in the movie where Smee accuses Hook of doing something underhanded and says that it's bad form and Hook just doesn't care less. And he dies, actually, in the play in the novel. He gets eaten by that crocodile. And I think it's an interesting choice because it wasn't like they were planning a sequel. They certainly didn't make a sequel. You know, it's an interesting choice that Disney chose not to kill him. To me, it was that whole idea of it's all happened before and it'll all happen again. I know this is a basic as hell analogy, but it felt a little bit like a Batman Joker thing where, like, 
Hook and Peter Pan are always in conflict, but neither one of them will ever really end the other, because then this sort of childhood game that they're trapped in will be at an end, so they will kind of keep getting to this point and then stopping just short of killing one another so it can carry on. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say something to that effect. Yeah, I really like the idea that it's cyclical. I really like the idea that it continues. And I like the idea that Hook's ultimate punishment is to never die, to live forever in Neverland, constantly getting the piss taken out of you by this child who you just cannot kill. Just this really irritating, like, trickster kid who gets the better of you every single time and just humiliates you. Yeah, I think Peter Pan's in Purgatory, which is a really fun alliteration, but Captain Hook is in Hell. Yeah, right, great. I guess moving on from that is the idea that in the book, and this is something that is suggested but not followed through on in the film, the Lost Boys come back to London and Mrs. Darling adopts them and raises them. And I think Wendy marries one of them. I don't know which one. Let's say the skunk one. Probably straight away. She's ready to be a mother, Sam. (laughs) Absolutely. And Ben, I was ready to move on, but I've just remembered one other quite dark thing. Oh, God. Okay, I'm going to brace myself. So this is from the play in the novel, and there is an epilogue where Wendy makes Peter Pan promise to come back. So she's growing up, but she's not totally ready to put away childish things just yet. And Peter comes back a year later and takes Wendy back to Neverland. And Wendy finds out that Tinkerbell has died just because fairies don't have very long lifespans, apparently. And not only that, but Peter Pan has forgotten that Tinkerbell ever existed, and he's forgotten all of the Lost Boys, and he's forgotten Captain Hook. Well, maybe he is in hell then, rather than purgatory. This whole thing is a curse. It's this idea that... I think this is really clever, actually. The way that he perceives time is so different to what we can comprehend, that not only has he lived forever, but he's lived for who knows how long, as a child. It really just messes with how you perceive time and how your memory works. And it adds more to this idea that it's going to go on forever. Even if Hook's gone, Peter will get up to other adventures and eventually he'll forget about Wendy. So what did critics say at the time about Peter Pan? Did the critics go for this one having been turned off in quite a lot of ways by Alice in Wonderland? I've read in books that just say generally that this is was very well received but then when I actually looked up to try and find some reviews most of the ones that have stuck around which tend to be from the bigger publications that keep them up on their websites were a little bit more mixed than you would expect definitely more positive than Alice in Wonderland so the Chicago Tribune says the backgrounds are delightfully picturesque but the music is only so-so which I strongly disagree with I see I think the songs after the first couple are very forgettable the score, I think, is spectacular. And they say that I'm sure the youngsters who grew up with cartoons will be right at home with all the characters, so kind of saying this is one for the kids, really, maybe not the adults. Variety, again, say that the music score is just fine, but the songs are less impressive than usually encountered in such a Disney presentation, which I think is maybe fair. But Time magazine said that this avoids much of the cute look that oversweetened some of Disney's previous films, Ornamented with some bright and lilting tunes, it's a lively feature-length excursion into a world that glows with an exhilarating charm and gentle joyousness. Oh, well, that's a nice one. Nice little turn of phrase. And it made bank as well. This was a hit. This made six million domestic, which puts it handily ahead of Cinderella, which made 4.2. Wow, so they really were flying high in many senses. Yeah, so Alice, big drop-off. That was like 2.4 million on its first run, although it made its money back later. They have a hit and then a flop and then a hit, and this was a really big hit. So they are back in the big leagues one of the highest grossing movies of the year as well, and they have the money to spend it, if they wanted to, let's say, 
on ridiculously opulent five-year-long passion projects. Ooh. Hey, well, I'm intrigued to see uh, what those end up being. So, what did you think of the movie, Ben? Well, as I said, I enjoyed it for the most part, but the outdated cultural depiction stuff was really tricky. I think I would land at something like a three and a half, just because as you watch it today, it's impossible to enjoy a massive chunk of the middle of the movie, which is all tied into what should be the fun adventure stuff. Yeah, it didn't sort of warm my heart as much as Cinderella. I kind of, out of these ones so far in the Bangers era, Cinderella is kind of my favourite of these three we've watched recently. And Peter Pan, I think if there was ever a way to divorce it from those sort of problematic sections, it would be a really straight-up enjoyable Disney adventure. But you can't do that. And those sequences are really tied in to the central section of this film and I kind of can't get past that but I I like the crocodile I thought most of the characters were okay I didn't love Wendy and the kids so yeah it's it's a 3.5 from me what about you see I didn't love those characters in the sense that like oh I want to really spend more time with them but I thought they were really well drawn especially in that first scene where Peter and Wendy are interacting and basically having two different conversations at the same time you really get who they are and what their relationship is and what it's going to be. And I, I think the voice performances for like a couple of kids are really good at getting that across. Obviously, the Native American stuff is just vile, and it ran through a lot more of the film than I remembered. I love the music. I like the production design, although it could have used more Mary Blair. Having said that, there's some fantastic shots in there. I love the characterization of Hook as well. Definitely the most screen time of a Disney villain to this point. It almost feels like the prototype for what the Disney villain would become. Definitely like Jafar and Gaston have a little bit of hook DNA in them. Rattigan from The Great Mouse Detective. I think quite an influential figure in the history of Disney villains. I'm three and a half. Now it's time for the part of the show we call Lasting Legacy, because a Disney movie is never just a Disney movie. In the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies and more, there's a whole universe out there for each character, and I think there's probably a lot for Peter Pan. Let's start with the parks. Uh, Where is Peter Pan in the parks? The biggest representation for Peter Pan, which is in most Disney parks worldwide, is Peter Pan's Flight, which is one of those classic... Fantasyland dark rides like Alice in Wonderland or Snow White or Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. And like those examples, it was there on opening day in the original Disneyland. It's probably the most iconic one and it's probably the most sophisticated one as an experience because it is a flight. You are in a little boat and you fly through the Darling House above London and they do some great things with perspective the way that they do the London skyline is slightly different in each version, but it always looks really cool. And then you fly over Neverland, and it puts you in the place of Peter Pan or one of the Darling Children very effectively. And it's definitely the most popular, the biggest queues of any of those dark rides. There is also, or there was, a restaurant in Disneyland, California. It was originally called the Chicken of the Sea Pirate Ship because it was sponsored by a seafood restaurant called Chicken of the Sea. I didn't know if that was referring to the seagull whose butt got shaved. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it's always represented Captain Hook's boat, and now it's just called Captain Hook's Galley. There's a little Skull Island next to there. I think it's gone now, actually, but that's what it was anyway. That's Parks, yeah. So one pretty iconic ride, and then that's more or less what you get. 
There's been a lot of like Peter Pan spin-off media though. Tinkerbell is up there with Mickey Mouse as a Disney mascot. She has had the edges sanded off in most of her appearance. Well, she never speaks, but she rarely expresses any kind of emotion in these things. You just see her in like advertisements for Disneyland and stuff like that, flying towards the camera and like little sprinkling of pixie dust, you know. Often from a wand, which she never right. uses in the film. Let's put Tinkerbell to one side for a second, though, and let's talk about the direct sequel to this movie, Peter Pan, Return to Neverland. I'm going to guess in this film, they return to Neverland. Am I right? Well, I mean, yes. I often ask you (laughs) what you think's going to happen in these sequels, but that one does kind of give the game away. Would you like to guess who returns to Neverland? Is it going to be the little boys as they're approaching their like last day of being able to be in Neverland? That would be quite good, but it is not. <gasps> is it Nana? Nana is deceased by oh. the time oh, Peter Pan no. Return to Neverland comes around. So Peter Pan Return to Neverland is about Wendy's daughter, Jane, who she's similarly raised on stories of Peter Pan. And Jane has a dog called Nana too. So the legacy lives on. So what is quite clever about this movie is that it's set in the Blitz. They've obviously just worked out what would have been happening by the time Wendy was an adult with her own kid. That actually means we've got an interesting dynamic here because Jane has grown up under very different conditions to Wendy. She too has a little brother, but she's had to take on a lot of responsibility helping to look after the family during this time because the father's gone off to war. It's just Wendy, Jane, Nana too, who's obviously very capable and the little brother. So she has been forced to grow up at a much earlier age than Wendy, and she swears off Peter Pan. She's not interested. And then who turns up to kidnap her? He mistakes her for Wendy, because again, if you live in Neverland, your whole sense of time is messed up, and he takes her back to Neverland, and she has to try and get home. Obviously, meanwhile, she meets Peter Pan. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, that sounds like it's got more substance than most of the other sort of straight-to-DVD sequels. They've really thought about it, and it has its own set of themes, even though it is a retread, because actually the generational retread is something you get in other Disney. I don't think we've had one yet, but in some of the later Disney sequels, that's a a narrative structure that's utilised. The Lion King 2 is probably the most famous example. But this is more its own thing, and this had a theatrical release, actually. So the animation quality is higher than what you're used to. Yeah, it's fine. It's good. It doesn't count, though, does it, in the Walt Disney Animation Studios? Oh, does it? Hell no. We're not going to be. <laughs> we're not going to be watching that for this podcast. No, that's not the only spin-off movie from the Peter Pan franchise because we have the absolutely ubiquitous, at least for a few years, direct-to-video Tinkerbell series. This was, I gather, as someone who was in my late teens at this point. A very big deal for children in the kind of early 2010s. So the first Tinkerbell movie came out in 2008. And of course, it's CGI. And what they have to do is give Tinkerbell a personality and give Tinkerbell a story and give her some friends. And she speaks in this. Ooh. She is voiced by Mayor Whitman from Arrested Development and Scott Pilgrim. Wow, that's great. And her? Exactly, yeah. Lucy Liu is in this. Angelica Houston is in this. Oh my god, that's a stacked cast. Decent cast, yeah? yeah? This is a very, very strange series of films. And I don't really want to go down the route we went with in terms of chronology with Cinderella, because that was nightmarish. But <laughs> this is ostensibly a prequel. Peter Pan is not in these movies, ever. 
I have watched two of them. I think there's six or seven. I watched the first one and then I watched one of the sequels and you'll find out why I chose that particular sequel to focus on. So Tinkerbell is born in this, but she's born fully grown. Um, Fairies are born when a baby laughs for the first time. There you go. I didn't want to bring babies up again, but here we are. So she's born and she's immediately inducted into fairy society in Fairy Hollow, which is the fairy district of Neverland. The fairies are responsible for coming to Earth four times a year and creating the seasons. And I mention that because that almost feels like a spin-off of Fantasia. Because that's what the fairies do. They go around working with nature and creating the different seasons in the Nutcracker suite. It's all tied in. A little bit of a crossover there. This is one of those children's franchises, one of these many children fantasy worlds where everyone has a job assigned to them at birth. Like the Smurfs, or like um, the movie Ants, or whatever. There's there's quite a lot of those where it's like, okay, you're born, here's what you do, you've got to do that forever. And she is assigned to be a tinker. Tinkerbell is a title. And a tinker is a kind of fairy who does like engineering. So she's a woman in STEM. That's kind of cool. <laughs> Impressive, yeah. So she doesn't want to be a tinker. She wants to have a more fancy, glamorous job. So you've got like nature fairies and water fairies and light fairies who do all this magical stuff and she nearly destroys spring by trying to hand at these other jobs and being terrible at them until i guess she saves the day whatever i was half paying attention at the end she gets to go back to the mainland that's what they call london basically uh, with the other fairies and she meets a very young Wendy. Ah, so hence it's a prequel. So that would seem to place this at a very specific point in Peter Pan chronology. I would say like five years prior to the movie Peter Pan. She looks at Wendy as a baby and goes, I'm going to try and kill you one day. <laughs> well, that's it. They seem quite happy. She returns a lost toy. So uh, good friends. Enjoy this toy while you can. <laughs> so I thought watching the movie peter pan i got the impression that pan had been with tinkerbell for longer than a few years but that seems to be what this movie suggests and yet several movies down the line in the pirate fairy starring tinkerbell and all her buddies that whole timeline gets thrown out the window because in this movie we meet a young captain hook Right. Played by Mr. Tom Hiddleston. No way. In 2014. Well, so this was post-Thor. He'd already played Loki at that point. This is between Thor 2 and Crimson Peak. So this is post-Avengers. This is Tom Hiddleston. At his peak. Yeah. He is in this. He is a several decades younger Captain Hook, which makes the timeline complete nonsense. There's no yeah. way that that Wendy thing happened in the same timeline that this did. There's absolutely Because not only would it not make sense if they were aging at a normal rate, Captain Hook ages slower, right? Because he lives in yeah, Neverland. Yeah, he'd have to be aging faster than normal, whereas it seems like it, it's the opposite. God, who knows? So this is all about Tinkerbell meeting Captain Hook and... You know what? I don't care. It doesn't matter. (laughs) The thing that I really wanted to bring up is that because this is a prequel, it's not just Captain Hook who we meet as a younger man. We meet, and I have to show you photographs of this on my phone through the webcam, we meet baby TikTok this is going on Twitter. Oh, ooh, Can you see that's that? Kind of horrifying. It's like ugly CGI baby crocodile. Oh, I like him a lot. With a tiny doll. What's his tiny doll? Oh, it's a fairy. He's got a fairy ah, there. Okay. So you see him being born, and he has this like love hit relationship with one of the fairies who he's following around. I think he's a doll. Look at him in that one. He's like a bit overcute. The eyes are too big. 
I've got one more for you, Ben. Here he is, eating the alarm clock. You see it happen. Oh my god, the pivotal event. It happened when he'd just been born. Yeah. <laughs> Hours after birth, he swallowed that alarm clock and it haunted him for his whole life. I don't know why he swallowed the hand. You don't see that yet. That'd be incredible if he bit Hook's hand off as a baby. Well, I commend you for watching at least two of these Tinkerbell movies in the name of this podcast. That is dedication. That is why you've got a PhD in this, you know? Okay, that picture's going on Twitter, and we'll ask the people to decide whether we'll like baby TikTok or not, because I thought you were going to fall for him, and I'm in love with the guy. <laughs> no, I have to say, he didn't do it for me. Sometimes when something is... It's like in Bambi, when they tried to make the creatures of the forest too cute, it's like, it's not working for me. But okay, fair enough. we'll let the listeners decide. I mean, we haven't got it yet, but one last thing. Uh, we are seemingly getting a live-action Peter Pan movie. We said we'd come back to the phrase Peter Pan and Wendy, and that is what this project's called. It's being directed by David Lowry, who did the Pete's Dragon movie, but also did stuff like A Ghost Story, and he's like a big A24 indie director guy. But people love his Pete's Dragon film, and so it's interesting that he's doing another Disney live-action remake, effectively. Is that what this is going to be? Is it going to be a, like a straight-up adaptation, but maybe balancing that focus with Peter Pan and Wendy, as the title implies? Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because Wendy is the protagonist of the movie Peter Pan. Peter Pan is a figure who comes in and out of her life, but it's about her journey. Peter Pan doesn't really change that much as a character. He's kind of... I mean, I guess he's kind of like Godzilla in a Godzilla movie. You come for Peter Pan, but he's only there for a little bit, so I don't know, maybe they'll, they'll put more Wendy in there. I know Jude Law's going to be Captain Hook. Yeah, that's good casting, isn't it? And Molly Parker is Mrs. Darling. And then it's kind of newcomers for Peter Pan and Wendy. So Peter Pan's going to be played by a kid called Alexander Maloney. And Wendy is going to be Eva Anderson. But yeah, Jude Law is Captain Hook. That is, well, your hook right there. That's what's going to bring people in. So that's apparently coming out in 2022. Hopefully it's as good as Pete's Dragon. And we'll have to do a whole extra podcast about it. Who knows? And that is it for this week's class. Join us again for next week's seminar when we'll be slurping down a big bowl of spaghetti and meatballs as we watch canine classic Lady and the Tramp. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you fancy dropping us a little review, we'll sneak into your room in the dead of night and teach you how to fly. And we promise it won't be as sinister as that sounds. Just a little bit of pixie dust creeping in through your window, skulking about on the roof. It's going to be great. For now, it's goodbye from Sam. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. Thanks so much for listening. Catch you in Neverland. Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class. Disneyversity.